Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Welcome to a candid conversation with Caitlin Doty, probably the most famous mortician on the internet. If you want more of her after this show, be sure to download her last appearance. She was on episode 157, Death. And a quick shout out to just a handful of you who are supporting us on Patreon. This week, I want to thank Alan, Brian, Bridget, Hazel, Hannah, Gary, and George. Thank you so much for supporting the show. This show continues because of new donors on Patreon and longtime donors like Scott and Joe, who donate through our website, thebittersweetlife.net. And you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thebittersweetlifepodcast. Support also comes from Italy Beyond the Obvious, helping arrange great Italian vacations at italybeyondtheobvious.com. If you want your business mentioned, support us at Patreon at the $50 level or sponsor the show. You can write to bittersweetlife at mail.com for more information. And right now, until I run out, all new donors will receive a Bittersweet Life magnet featuring art by our muse, Caravaggio. And if you don't have any money, but you love the show, text a friend right now suggesting that they subscribe. Spreading the word is extremely valuable as well. And now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Caitlin Doty. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I am joined by Caitlin Doty. She's a mortician and the New York Times bestselling author of Smoke Gets in Your Eyes and From Here to Eternity, which we talked about back on episode 179, Death. So take a listen to that if you missed it. She's also the creator of the Ask a Mortician web series and the founder of the Order of the Good Death. Her funeral home is based in Los Angeles, where she joins me to talk about her newest book, Will My Cat Eat My Eyeballs? Big Questions from Tiny Mortals About Death. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm again. back. I'm back, baby. You're back. I know. Well, you were a fan favorite last time, so I'm sure everybody's very relieved to find that you're back on the show again. Good. So this book, all of the questions are from kids. Yes. Why did you choose children? Why not kids, I say? Uh, I have a web series called Ask a Mortician that's about questions that you ask a mortician. And it's a natural fit to write a book about questions for a mortician, but I never really wanted to do that. I never really wanted to write a YouTuber book that thought was deeply offensive and painful to me. But I started to travel and give talks and children would ask questions and their questions were so spot on, open and guileless and funny as compared to the adult questions. And the idea of doing a question book for them, with them, but also for adults, felt kind of transgressive in a way that made me excited. And that it went from there. So did you encounter all of these questions on the road? Or did you actually solicit kids in your lives to ask you questions? Yeah, where did where did I source these children? Yes. Where did I acquire them? <laughs> yes. I, I say that I got them all from free range, organic children, you know, authentically sourced. The first half of the book was from children on the road, questions that kids would ask in public events that I was doing. A couple were from children in my life. And then the final probably 
15 to 18 or so, I put out a video that said, send me your children. And parents or aunts or fun folks sent me really adorable little videos of the children in their life and their fascinating questions. There are a lot of really good questions in this book. Is there one in the book that is your favorite? I can't pick. That's a Sophie's choice. I cannot pick between my children. Um, You know, (laughs) I think that one of the ones that's my favorite is why do bugs eat the flesh but not the bones Mm. of a dead person? And that was my favorite because I didn't know the answer. And it felt like a question I should know the answer to because I'm such a dead body enthusiast Mm -hmm. and frankly expert. I should be an expert at this point. Um, And I just didn't know the answer to that. And we found this entomologist who could really talk named Peter Coffey, who could really talk about why the reasons were and talk about the exceptions where, for example, if you put domestic beetles in with a fetal lamb skeleton where the bones aren't fully formed, they will in some situations eat through bone as well. Hmm. And that for me, I was just like, ah, if you're a geek about the corpse, that's just like, oh my God, I love it. Mind blowing. Give me more. If you think back to child Caitlin, is there one of these questions that would have been closest to something you would have asked when you were a kid? Ooh, that's a good question. I'm not completely sure what I would have asked when I was a kid. Honestly, it's not so much the specific questions themselves, I think. It's more the vibe of openness and the encouraging of curiosity that I could have really used because I didn't feel like it was safe to talk about death. My parents never told me, don't talk about death. That's wrong. That's weird. But I just got the vibe that it wasn't an appropriate thing to ask about. Yeah, it's not so much the individual question as just the feeling of like, hey, I'm here to answer any questions you have. We can have this conversation. And that's not only directed at kids. It's also directed at adults who should feel like they also have the ability to be curious and morbid and relish in that fact. Yeah. Do you remember the first dead thing you ever saw as a child? Ah, the first dead thing. I was I was talking to a friend about this recently, and I remember being in probably first grade or second grade, and we had planted this rose bush outside my house. And there was a big, the first rose that grew on it was this big, beautiful, gorgeous rose that smelled beautiful. And I cut it off and I took it to school with me. And throughout the day, it just started wilting and dying as a rose would do that you have out of water, just carrying around with you all day. And I remember being so profoundly existentially sad Hmm. because the realization of, oh my God, this is not, this beautiful thing is dying in front of me. And it was so sad, but like a, a, a thing that every child goes through, right? This feeling of, oh my God, this is, this is it, right? And just the anthropomorphizing we do of stuffed animals or things in our life. And then you lose one or one goes missing in the dryer or whatever it is. And like, oh, what does this mean? But these are the important, the hope is that a child gets to this before they lose a parent or a sibling or something that's deeply traumatic. You hope that they have these micro moments of engaging with death before something much larger and more threatening happens. It's interesting because as you were saying that I was reminded of I had a one doll named Judy who was very important to me as a child and I remember feeling sad knowing that one day I would die and Judy wouldn't be able to come with me. Oh she was this immortal thing 
but yeah, that same that same sort of sadness. It, at some point in the book, you describe yourself as a bit of a morbid child. But do you think that you really were, or do you think morbid is a a thing that we prescribe to children for just a general curiosity? I think we need a reframing of the word morbid in general. Um, it's a very pejorative word now. It's oh, you're being morbid. Don't be morbid. Morbid is also meaning interested in death, fascinated by death, curious. And why wouldn't we be curious about death? God, it's the only thing that's, one, going to happen to all of us. And two, it weighs over our every living day. You know, it's like completely a part of our of our lives every single day. And if you're not curious about it, it's just hiding in your subconscious, waiting to pounce and waiting to give you anxiety or depression or however it manifests in your life. But as far as being a morbid child, I did find a diary, a Hello Kitty diary from when I was third grade, I think. And it has one single entry in it. And it says, Dear Diary, today is Halloween. Finally, it's come. And that's the only thing that it says in this entire diary. It just, as I got into high school, I was so fascinated by medieval history, by Victorian history, by all these real death periods and the aesthetics of, of death and cemeteries. And it, yeah, but, the, but goth doesn't really cover it. Morbid doesn't really cover it. It's just a macabre sensibility about the world. And macabre is actually the word that I relate most to just having an interested interest in the literature and the, and the culture and the history around these deathy topics. And I think that I was a little more morbid than most kids, but why wouldn't a child be interested in this? We give so much credit to adolescent sexual awakening and the idea that at a certain point, children discover their sexuality and their body, and we're supposed to answer all their questions honestly and openly. And yes, that's very true. But what about when they're eight or nine and they discover for the first time that they and everyone they love will die? Why are we not also furnishing them at that point with facts and openness and honesty around that topic as well? Yeah, it's interesting. I was wondering as I was reading your book, because these questions that you have, and I'll ask you some of the other questions in it, are just these open, very curious questions. And I don't know if people can hear it. My cat, Mr. Ding Dong, is yelling again at the bottom of the stairs. Will Mr. Ding Dong eat your eyeballs? <laughs> I know, right? That's one of the questions that is asked. These questions are so open, like that question, will my cat eat my eyeballs, is such an open question. And so there's this moment when fear in a child's awakening to death sets in. It's that realization that everyone will die or that you will die. Do you remember that coming into your childhood in any way, you know, beyond the rose where the curiosity meets the fear? Well, I mean, my, my superhero origin story is that I saw a child fall to what I presumed was their death at a local shopping mall when I was eight years old and I was present. I, saw the fall, heard the fall, heard the screams, heard the chaos. And it was an incredibly traumatic event for me because I didn't have any context prior to that of just how real death was and that it could happen to me, to people that I love. Because I grew up in a relatively small town in Hawaii and not a lot of terrible things happened up until that age. I'd never had a big death of anyone that I was very close to. It's sunny and nice every day. You know, it's, there wasn't a lot of deep drama in my early childhood. So witnessing this very profound, very sad, very 
intense thing made me very terrified about death for a long time. And so most of my work, most of everyone's work as an adult is to help fix their childhood, Mm -hmm. right? And so for me, finally doing this book and not even trying to fix adults who have had this pain, but going straight to the source and saying, hey, if you're raising a child or if you are a child, just let them ask these questions. Let them hear that it's okay to have these questions. Let them figure out that death isn't only terror and horror and threatening. It's also fascinating. It's also science and the history of the world. And we can look at these fun parts about death as well as the horrible parts about death. Yeah, one of the things I loved as a kid who used to bury things and dig them back up again, hoping to find a skeleton like instantly. One of the questions of the book is, is a kid asking, we buried my dog in the backyard. And what would happen if I were to dig him up now? And I think that's such a common child thing. Like what would happen? What will I find? Will I find a little skeleton? What's the answer to that question? I love how children are always interested in the physicality of the body as someone who as an adult is so fascinated by the physicality of the corpse and what happens to corpses. That's really the reason I am on this earth is to explore that and educate about that. I really relate to that question. And so obviously a lot of adults have those questions too, but it's really children who are able to articulate and fixate on it. And I think in a really interesting way, the answer is that it totally depends on the soil where you live and how deep, the animal is buried. So the reason that natural burial grounds, the burial grounds where you don't embalm a body or put it in a big casket or a big concrete vault underground, keep the body in under just three feet of soil. So it's a fairly shallow grave. It's not the six feet under that we think. And the reason that you put it in shallow soil is because that soil, especially if you live in a place with a pretty rich topsoil, is expertly designed to decompose a human or animal body. There's fungi, there's bacteria, they're just roiling around in there. And decomposition will happen very, very fast. So if you were just to put uh, Mr. Fluffy a couple feet down in rich topsoil, that animal is going to decompose like that in a matter of weeks, probably. But if you really want to do something a little more mummy-like, That's when you want to wrap Mr. Fluffy in plastic or put him in a heavy box and bury him pretty deep down because those are layers of protection for him. So it really depends on what your goals are. (laughs) You know, do you want your animal to decompose or not? Do you want him to be down there? Do you want him to go back into the earth? What makes you more comfortable and how deep you put him and how much you wrap him up in additional material will determine that. Well, I'm curious, as a person who's fascinated by decomposition, you had a cat that was a co-host with you a number of years ago who has since passed on. What did you decide to do with your cat? My cat, first of all, uh, the meow, (laughs) rest in peace, she was put to sleep at home. We looked around. I think I found this person on Yelp, but it was a doctor who comes to people's homes to put animals to sleep. And we knew that it was time because she had mammary cancer. So she had fairly large tumors. And I said that I wouldn't put her to sleep until her quality of life was affected. And it was obvious. And one of the tumors ruptured and there was just no way to, to justify 
keeping her around with this super rating tumor at a certain point. And so we decided, even though she still felt healthy and she was eating, it just wasn't fair to her. So we had this doctor come and she just went to sleep on my lap and never had any sense of what was happening to her. And it was just lovely. And we were crying and then we had a wake at the home, my friends came over, they brought cake and champagne and candy and we laid her out and I, it was really nice having her out overnight and feeling her body get rigid and go into rigor mortis and it became very obvious that she was no longer alive. <laughs> and that's and that's one of the beauties of having a human wake, I think too, is that yeah, they're, they look dead and they seem dead and they feel dead and that's sort of the point. Yes, this is a person who is dead now. And then we took her to my good friend's property and we dug a hole and we buried her in the forest. But what I will say is that if the animal's put to sleep instead of a natural death, you want to put the animal fairly far down, a little further down than you normally would dig the hole a little further down because if an animal digs her up like a coyote, they can become ill from the medicine that put them to sleep. Oh, wow, that's fascinating. Who knew? Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, but that's really interesting. I actually did not know until I did a video, not this was before the before the cat, but uh, there was a video that I did years and years ago about this. And you had some vets in the comment that was like, people should also know this. And I was like, okay, I know now. All right. Wow, that's fascinating. So how does, just curious, because of the grief of losing an animal that's lived with you for so long, how does your captivation with the study of death and with the decomposition of death meet that kind of grief for you? Yeah, it was interesting. I I think that for a couple of years while I had her, I think I definitely had the idea that maybe she was going to get taxidermied or maybe she was, gonna, you know, whatever interesting, crazy idea I had about what was going to happen to her. But when it came down to it, I found I didn't really want that. And, you know, if you want to taxidermy your cat, by all means, go ahead. But for me, I found that keeping the principles that I espouse for humans, the idea of a home wake, being very involved, very hands-on, digging the grave, doing a natural burial, doing all those things for my cat, also felt necessary to me and also felt like the right thing to do. Going back to before death happens, one of the things you write about in the book or you say in the book is that scientists believe that the brain is capable of making things seem and feel magical. And you use that in the context of near-death experiences, I believe. What does that magic have to do with death? It's hard to talk about near-death experiences. For the most part, in the book, I was not talking about religion or the idea of what happens after death. Yes, kids had questions that were, what's going to happen to me when I die? And the answer is, that's above my pay grade, kid. I don't know. Uh, and I probably you probably shouldn't be hearing it from me anyway, because <laughs> my idea is nothing. But I do think that near-death experiences are specifically very fascinating because you have People on one hand saying this is actually the universal religious experience. But then on the other hand, you might have scientists who say, yes, religion and the idea of these universal religious experiences happen in the brain and near-death experiences are what we think of as religious experiences. But it's actually the scientific thing. It's just a, a 
snake eating its tail at a certain point to suss out the chicken or the egg and, and what exactly starts it all. But they're much more common than we think they are. And as far as what science believes, they believe that things that naturally happen when you die, including the lack of oxygen to your brain and the raised blood pressure, the trauma of being close to death are what can cause your brain to create these visions. And what they found is that the visions align very closely to what your culture and belief system already is. So if you're a Christian, you're going to see Jesus come out of the light. If you're Hindu, you're going to see the God of death. It relates to what your current experience of life is. And there's also a really interesting connection with fighter pilots and the idea of something that if you're going at a really high rate of speed, you get this white tunnel vision. And what's happening there is also very similar physiologically to what is happening during a near-death experience. So I personally fall on the side of, of science being what causes it, but I'm also, I know better than to put all my cards in that pile. Yeah, because it wouldn't only be religion, but it would be your culture too, probably, that would affect what experience you have at the end of life. Exactly. You've been, you've studied death in so many different cultures. Your whole last book was about that. But is there a favorite culture for you, a culture that you feel really gets it right, or when a person's going through a dying process, it really feels like their experience and the family's experience is sort of the most dead on during a terrible time? You know, as far as what, there are other cultures that are so different from what we do say in the United States. And those are important to look at, but I think it's also important to be realistic about what we can accomplish here and what's possible. And for that, I think it's most helpful to look at places like Japan, specifically Tokyo, where they have these incredible mixes of honoring the dead body, specifically in these older ways, washing the body as a group, dressing the body, having these rituals, but also high technology, these beautiful big columbariums where a robot arm will get your mom's ashes and bring it right to you, or these glowing Buddhas will light up to say where your mom's ashes are. This combination of the old and the new, I think, could really work well for people in the 21st century in other countries. But in the United States, we are so terrified of anything, especially in the funeral industry, of anything that isn't bland, normal, mid-century, middle-of-the-road ideas about what burial and cremation should be. Yeah, it's interesting because we recently on the show had Robert McFarlane on, who wrote the book Underland, which is right out just now. Oh, yeah. I've had two people on my book tour tell me about him. They absolutely are obsessed with him. Oh, well, you should listen to this interview because he's so charming and also so fascinating. And he's basically looking at why we use the underground both to hide things that are precious to us, but also to revere things. You know, like we both fear and love the underland. And part of what he's getting at there is burial, that we bury the dead. We put them to rest. Do you think that that is something about human where to put something to bed, we, we bury it? Yeah, I, I'll have to read his book. It's It already is on my list. It sounds very fascinating to me. But it is interesting how, depending on what culture you're from, 
what you want to do with the dead. And to me, I always think about this. You have cultures like, you know, in India or, or in Hinduism where you have to cremate the person. And at a certain point you crack the skull open and that's where the soul is released. And it's almost an upward motion or even Tibetan sky burial where the body is laid out to be eaten by vultures, which is also a skyward motion of the body. But then you have something like American burial, which is more surrounded, more extreme than burial has really ever been at any other time in history. So you have a body that is chemically preserved, put in a big sealed casket, put in a concrete vault deep underground. It's like Fort Knox under there. It's not ashes to ashes, dust to dust. It's not coming anywhere near the ground around it. So it's almost like our relationship with death is such that we fear it so much that we have to completely surround it and completely bury it deep into the earth. And that's sort of profound, right? Because it tells you a lot about our culture, how deeply we need to bury the idea of our own mortality. Hmm. To questions out of that for you personally is spending all this time with death but and and you know being a mortician yourself is there anything about the physicality of it or some of the things you've encountered that you find difficult to deal with as an experienced mortician i think the thing that i still struggle with is saying no to families or suggest even just suggesting to a family that they're loved one is too decomposed to be seen. And the reason is that I, my funeral home is known for being very open with the families and letting the families be completely involved and always saying, you don't need to chemically preserve the body. You can just come and sit with the body and you can handle it. You're strong enough. But there is something that happens to the body where it becomes so decomposed. Say someone wasn't found for many days or was found in a bathtub after many days. The decomposition is so far along that the person almost becomes no longer human and not even expert embalming, if you should choose that, will be able to bring that person back to a place where they looked like they did. And so having to explain that to a family, having to tell them that they still are in control, but as someone who's done this for a while, I would just highly suggest that they not do this is very hard for me because that's the opposite of what I want to be able to tell them. Is part of your curiosity and fascination with decomposition a way for you to be able to see any state of a human body? Like the curiosity makes the makes any experience you have okay? I think that my interest in decomposition is more about connecting it to mental freedom and the idea of I so am so interested in control in my own life <laughs> and controlling my narrative and my body and the fact that society wants to control, especially female identified bodies. They want to control what we can do with our reproductive system. They want to control what we can do with our sexuality. And the idea of accepting decomposition for me is accepting that things will get messy that I will be buried just a few feet beneath the earth. I talked about that rich topsoil and I will just decompose. I am not under there protected like Fort Knox. I am not a lady that's, I'm not a grandma protected in my casket. I am just getting gross and bloated and eaten by animals. And I will lose that control underground. And that for me, that, that commitment to accepting that and the commitment to having society accept that 
and that we are just part of the earth and need to break down and go back to the earth. That's my interest in decomposition. That's fascinating. So I did a very brief stint working as an embalmer beside these people. And part of the reason why I stopped doing it was because I started looking at everybody in this way, you know, all of a sudden I'm with my friends and I can sort of picture all of them dead mm. in a way like you just sort of are so familiar with what it means when you get started doing something like this do you have to learn to compartmentalize it how do you consider the death and the living together side by side in your life I guess I don't I do see the need to keep up positive open relationships with the people I'm really close to because it, I understand that they could die at any time and that's actually quite helpful for me um, in my relationships and keeping good relationships with the people that I really care about. But also I try in my job, whether I'm working with the public or I'm working with someone at the funeral home or whatever it is, the idea is that I am supposed to help you through a hard time by being competent and smart and positive, getting it done. And if I can do that, that is my job. My job isn't to descend into the depths of sorrow with you. You have friends and you have family to do that with you. That's not my job. My job is to offer you this service. And if I can do that, I can go home at the end of the night and say, oh, great, I did my job today. And that's what I focus on. I, do, I can't let in each specific sorrow because that's the way to get burnt out very quickly. Yeah. Well, since this is a book of questions, I do want to end with at least one question, one more question from the book. And since many of our listeners are frequent travelers, I thought one of the questions you ask in the book that they might all want to know would be what happens if you die on a plane? Good question. That, that, that one is actually one of my favorites on the, in the book, because basically the answer is you can hope that they'll have an extra seat available in a plane. But as most frequent travelers know, they pack us in like sardines in the plane, which means that there is likely not to be an extra seat, which means if the person next to you has a heart attack from California to Hawaii or from Thailand to New Zealand, and there's no place to land, you are sitting next to a dead person for the rest of the flight. And we think of there must be corpse cupboards, that they hide bodies. There must be a place in the plane. Nope. There was a long haul flight. I believe it was um, Singapore Airlines had the longest flight in the world at the time. And they actually did build in these corpse cupboards, but they've discontinued that plane. So we don't have them anymore. So no airline has them. And there's not an extra place to put a dead body on a plane other than where it is currently sitting. And in doing that research, did you find out anything about the training that the flight attendants receive of, I don't know how to communicate that <laughs> to the you seatmate next to the person? I, yeah, you know, I never, I never got a story about like exactly what you would tell that person. I would assume that the flight attendant or someone in charge would make an effort to sit next to them or every effort to move people around so no one was having to do it. It sounds like the kind of thing that, you know, would show up on CNN. It's like horrified passenger made to sit another negative story for United. But I do know that, that flight attendants are trained if at all possible to, even if the person is in rigor mortis and they're clearly dead, they don't want the flight quarantined or they don't want a big delay in schedule because of course that costs airlines money. So 
they will call the ambulance to rush in and take the person out. And if they're going to be declared dead, they're going to be declared dead in the hospital away from the plane. Because if the person actually, quote unquote, dies on the plane, it's too much of a bureaucratic hassle. So they're like, oh, no, we can still we can still save them. Off they go. Yeah. Uh, but they're obviously, obviously dead. They've been dead for four hours by the time that flight lands. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We're now in Bora Bora and they're very dead. Well, since you've been on book tour, I am not going to ask you the question that everybody's been wondering. Will my cat eat my eyeballs? And I'm going to just encourage you to read the book to find out that answer. Oh, spoiler. It's not looking good. But you, yes, <laughs> I guess read the book and get the full the full story. The book is Will My Cat Eat My Eyeballs? Big Questions from Tiny Mortals About Death. Uh, is there anything else you want to plug? Obviously, your Ask a Mortician web series is a great thing. You know, if you have any questions, Order of the Good Death is my main nonprofit site. If you have any questions about green burials, water cremation, new death technology, keeping the body at home. We have a really robust resource section that will answer all your questions. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's great to have you back on the show. Yeah, good to be back. Thank you again. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Talk to you next week. Bye. Before you go... We are giving away three copies of Caitlin's book, Will My Cat Eat My Eyeballs, shipped to you absolutely free. To win, just follow us on social media. You can pick Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or all three, and then follow Tiffany's instructions. Just search and follow The Bittersweet Life Podcast. And remember, you help the show when you help a friend find out about it. Hey, maybe your friends would like to win this contest too. So please, spread the word. Thanks so much. Talk to you next week. Bye.